A note. Following advice from work-life imbalance may lead to action being taken by HR, your family, the authorities, or higher powers. Welcome to Work-Life Imbalance, an advice show focusing on workplace and lifestyle issues. Any resemblance to actual advice, living or dead, or actual wisdom is purely coincidental. I'm your monstrous manager, Frank Eastman. And I'm your lovable office companion, Derek Lewis. Today, we'll be talking about deadlines in the deep dive before we address some audience questions and issues from the internet. But first... Frank, before we get to the daily stand-up, I have an important announcement that I feel I should share with you and with our listeners. My house smells like farts, and it's not my fault. It's uh, not your fault for once. <laughs> for once. No, we, uh, we just finished our meal prep for the week, and Jessica decided that it was a great idea to do Brussels sprouts. So, <laughs> so oh now, my. Uh, at least for tonight and for the rest of the foreseeable future, my house will smell like farts. Um, and, and for those of you who have never cooked Brussels sprouts or, or, you know, experienced them cooking before, it is just this unholy funk that, I mean, <laughs> it, it really does require like a fucking priest to come and exercise the stank out of your house. Like it is, it is ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I will be fighting that and I will try, I will try to fight through it and be funny. But uh, if I'm overcome by the stink, Frank, I am I'm putting the responsibility on you to to call in help. So one um, in the news, there was uh, recently uh, that Uranus smells like farts. <laughs> How did they know, Frank? How did they know? How did they know? Uh, apparently using, you know, like uh, science. Uh, probably some sort of spectral uh, graphing of uh, light as it's reflecting off of Uranus. They they managed to uh, determine that there's a uh, a chemical compound that makes up a decent amount of a decent amount of the atmosphere, and uh, that that chemical, when found on Earth, smells like farts. So uh, I think the nice. science community has been laughing about that for forever. My second is a serious one, though. How are you cooking? These poor Brussels sprouts that have done nothing to anyone that the whole house smells like sulfur. I mean, every... Okay, so I I don't know, like... I'm not familiar with the different types of Brussels sprouts or whatnot, but uh, if you take shredded Brussels sprouts and you th- and, and they touch any heat source, <laughs> if, you w- if you walk them past a candle, then they will begin to emanate fart smell. The like, devil's confetti. okay that would that would got me uh that is now the permanent name for brussels sprouts in my opinion the the, the devil's confetti oh that is really good frank i'm I'm gonna write i'm gonna write that down hold on now stovetop cooking brussels sprouts i i think you you might run into those issues what we usually do because we i'll i'll cop to it we eat a decent number of brussels sprouts in this house Uh uh-huh we usually roast the brussels sprouts in the oven right 
and like I'll I'll do them whole and I'll hit them with uh some olive oil and right. then some seasoning or sometimes I'll hit them with a little bit of like balsamic before roasting right. them. I, I think I think you're onto it. I, I think the <laughs> I think the main problem is that when you when you pierce the outside of the Brussels sprout, uh, it begins to to start emanating that funk. So as long as you leave them whole. Uh, and you, you know, roast them or something like that, or, or even if you were to, to, you know, saute them in the pan, as long as they were whole, I think that, that those outer leaves are specially designed to hold in the funk. To hold in the nastiness. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, right. that's what they're there for, uh, in general. No, but unfortunately we, uh, we will pan see or, uh, we will saute, uh, shredded Brussels sprouts, which does i mean it's it's delicious after it's done i mean it um you know gets all up in there all of the brussels sprout is nice and tender so like it's it's it tastes good but jesus Smells christ bad. the smell yeah <laughs> we are not getting our security deposit back holy <laughs> shit <laughs> we, we are sunk on that one oh um, man i i like brussels sprouts quite a bit so here's another one i am uh, the age that I am, and I'm soon to be older in, in a little bit of time. It was only within the last, I would say, year and a half that I found out that Brussels sprouts come on a stalk. Yeah. It looks like those, uh, like jingle bells. Yeah, it's really weird. Yeah, it's fucking freaky as hell looking. I will, sw <laughs> I, hand up, I, I would have until that moment thought that Brussels sprouts were just little tiny cabbages. Like just the like the little tiniest cabbage known to man, and they just grew in little rows. And I was like, "Man, Brussels sprouts are a bitch to harvest." And then I saw some <laughs> on the stalk in the store one day, and I was like, "You got to be fucking me." That's that's how Brussels sprouts come. So I mean, I, all I'm natural. Not gonna, I'm not trying to you know basically you know say that I'm superior in this one because I, I really kind of thought the same. I, I I guarantee you, I saw it first on like chopped or something when they you know pull out you know a whole stalk of uh of brussels sprouts but the thing is what i want to know is okay so if, if it was me walking through some area like some woodland area and i saw brussels sprouts in their natural habitat and it basically looks like fucking like alien pods chilling on a on a on a stick who the fuck looked at that and saw a meal like that 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 kind of shit blows my mind. It's like we have all these foods that are just so odd and somebody had to eat it first. To and it, blow your mind even more, it didn't come uh -huh. like that. What do you mean? I'm fairly certain those motherfuckers are the same general thing as broccoli and cauliflower. Okay. And we have mutated them over the years <laughs> to turn into the Brussels sprout. Wow. Yeah, Man, I mean, we, we have we... done some buck wild shit with vegetables over the... Like, everyone's <laughs> all up in the air about GMO corn, and I'm just like, look at the goddamn Brussels sprout. Does that look at all like the broccoli? And the broccoli doesn't oh. look like it originally looked in a wild either. Like, I think original wild broccoli was like a stalky thing with, like, some little flor florets at the top, uh, and right. was barely edible. And they just have, you know, bred it over the years until it's this gigantic bulky mass of uh of tasty broccoliness 
So I, I want to believe that like originally Brussels sprouts did kind of like grow on their own, but like <laughs> slowly but surely they kind of like the scientists kind of coaxed it up onto the stalk. And then from then on, they just kind of grew on the stalk. <laughs> they kind of had you like, come on, come on, get up on the stalk. Yeah, we did it. <laughs> we can now grow them on the stalk. Oh, man. Uh, okay. I, I did not intend for this to be a 10 minute conversation about my, my house farts, but <laughs> sometimes life, sometimes well, life be like that. There we are. I mean, uh, I, it's, it's one of those I hope your daily stand-up things. was really shitty. <laughs> yeah, my daily stand-up for today was was going to be terrible anyway, so we might as well just, uh, just let that one go. Put, put that one back in the, uh, put that one back in the pocket then. Yeah, I'll put that one back in the quiver and we'll, we'll pull that out later. <laughs> oh, I apologize, Frank. Didn't, didn't necessarily mean to, uh, derail it that hard. That's all right, we can talk about your fart smell in your house, uh, whenever, whenever it necessitates. The thing is, oh, like, I was—I'm just thinking about it. Um, my about my house farts. About your house farts, it's on my mind constantly. I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> no, I realize I've been like watching uh, Food Network and shit for over a decade, like well uh-huh. over a decade. I would say probably onto fifteen years. I have to think that Food Network has been a thing, and I've been watching yeah. it since it first was a thing. And somehow, in all of that time, I still had not managed to see a Brussels sprout in its entirety. <laughs> it, w- it was a very well-kept secret, I think. I think, I think they, don't, they didn't want people to know, you know how the sausage was made in that case. Like, I think they didn't want people to see how weird they look. Because they had, they had such a hard time getting people to eat Brussels sprouts for so long. I know. And then w- when people were on the cusp of like being okay with Brussels sprouts because, you know, it's, you know, it's healthy for you and it's good on that, like uh, really good on the scale of whatever it is where like kale and broccoli rob are like, you know, top of the health <laughs> charts. And then you have like, um, uh, Brussels sprouts are like two or three or four on the list. Um, so people saw that and were like, okay, now we will agree to eat Brussels sprouts. And then all of a sudden for somebody to show that on TV and everybody's like, fuck that. No, never mind. Not that alien pod looking bullshit. I ain't fucking with that. <laughs> I've seen invasion of the body snatchers. I ain't touching that shit. <laughs> this is how you get snatched up. <laughs> I mean, Uh-oh. uh, I-, I saw, I saw what it did to, uh, Donald Sutherland. I saw what it did to Donald, Donald Sutherland. I'm not about to touch those things. And to Jeff Goldblum. Oh, yeah. poor Jeff Goldblum. Oh. Jeff Goldblum always comes out the worst for wear in these things. He really does. I mean, I'm trying to think of any movie he's been in. I'm not 100% familiar with his, his entire works, but um, most of the ones that I remember him been in, like The Fly and Jurassic Park and uh, Independence Day and all that kind of jazz, like things don't always go real well for Jeff Goldblum. It's not all coming up roses for Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> want to oh, uh, want to get into the deep dive? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. All right. So today on the deep dive, I uh, want to talk about deadlines. Generally speaking, they're a necessary evil, but they can become a problem when one or more parties don't agree on when your work should be completed. And a lot of it has to do with who decides when a deadline is due. Uh, sometimes it can be decided by the team. Sometimes it's decided by the boss. 
Sometimes it's decided by the industry or a client. And getting all those parties to agree on when something can be done or when it should be done or when it has to be done can be a pretty pretty decent tightrope to walk. Uh, Frank, you are a little bit more on the process side than I am. Uh, <laughs> give, give me the skinny on the, the havoc that you have seen deadlines wreak. So deadlines are sort of a, one of those constants of, uh, of work. And I'm a project manager by training over time. And having been in the software engineering field for as long as I have, I've sort of been um, witness to the, the evolution of the, the agile uh, transformation and agile uh, right. software development. And so originally as a project manager, like deadlines were what I did and I provided deadlines and I measured and as the deadline shifted, I would respond back and, you know, try to update uh, all the stakeholders on, on where things were and how they were going. And right. we had gigantic charts that were put together with complex formula and all kinds of stuff. And at the end of the day, that was all bullshit. <laughs> it really was. It, it just was 100% just, an exercise in horseshit. <laughs> yeah, it was just a complex, in-depth, long-term exercise and lying out my ass. Because if I started and I were to tell you that this complex software development project is going to be done in 15 months, 2 weeks, 3 days, 48 minutes, and 13 seconds... <laughs> I am I am lying to you. I might be lying to you backed up by many many numbers and a lot of figures. I might be able to show you the math right. that suggests that I am not lying to you. But I'm full of shit. There I can't I can't guarantee that. And and at best it is a wild shot in the dark. Right. Uh and because so the, because the th I mean the thing is is that you know essentially what you're what you're talking about is that you know Planning something 15 months in advance or pl planning 15 months out, I mean, really, it's just, you know, hopefully, you know, at, at best, like, it is kind of the small addition and accumulation of the smaller tasks that hopefully your your team or you know, who, whoever is kind of breaking down the requirements is able to kind of piece this up into smaller pieces. And hopefully, you know, you've tasked each one of those and, you know, you have added them up together and that's what the eventual timeline is like that is that is best case scenario. So even if you have good estimation, even if you have something that's based on some sort of reality, the thing is, in order for that to, to work, every single step along the way has to go perfectly. And <laughs> you and I both know that ain't gonna, that happen. Ain't gonna happen. Literally, you know, I've been a part of I mean, probably 45, 50 projects, you know, of varying sizes, some, you know, really big efforts, some, you know, really small, like one or two week projects. But by and large, there has never been a plan. Uh, what, what, what's the old saying? Um, a plan never survives contact with the exactly. enemy. As soon as you start looking at a code base, take your plan, ball it up, maybe wipe your ass with it and then toss it straight in the toilet. That is the best oh, yeah. place. That is the only practical use for any one of those plans because, I mean, best case scenario, it shifts slightly. And <laughs> the problem is once something shifts at the very beginning of the, of the start of a project, you know, that'll shift by 10%. The next thing has to shift by like 15%. 
And before long, that 15-month project turns into 23 months, turns into 28 months. And it just starts ballooning until somebody somewhere does a cost-benefit analysis. And they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> we have to stop the writing. <laughs> and fire all of these people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the, the switch to Agile didn't really change that. Right. But what the switch to Agile did was change the expectations of the stakeholders. Right. To say, hey, we're going to work in much smaller and much more predictable pieces of time. So instead of lying to you and telling you that in 15 months I'm going to be done with this whole project, I'm going to tell you something that I have a much better chance of being accurate with. Right. Which is to say, I'm going to get this small piece of it done in the next two weeks or three weeks. And, and as, I, as I usually tell people... Uh, I can be accurate or I can be precise. <laughs> and as we get farther out, that's, that's all that we're left with. I can be accurate as we get farther out, but I cannot be precise. Right. Because, you know, accuracy is, you know, basically being correct in what you estimate, but being precise is actually... The granularity yeah. of the unit of measurement. Right. So, you know, the further you get out, you know, you really... To be accurate, you have to start padding numbers and padding numbers and padding numbers in order to even approach any semblance of accuracy. So your precision goes to just flat zero. I've had multiple people in the past, you know, just a couple of years, uh, ever since I really uh, embraced the or been in a company that embraced an agile transition. And for a long time, people have fought me um, over over agile. It's like agile is just a waste of time. I mean, it's just more meetings and. You know, all it's doing is slowing the process down and, you know, just, just kind of listening to what you were saying before, you know, just imagine like a water, waterfall methodology. You, you basically go in the closet for 15 months and you come back out and you tell them we were wrong. It's going to take another nine months. That is not going to fly. But if you're doing agile, then you may find out that something's going to, going to be delayed very soon. And so it gives you a, a way to communicate that properly to the stakeholders in a way that is still, I mean, they're not going to be happy about it. Nobody's happy that a project is going to be delayed, but at least that gives them information to then make a decision. Maybe the decision is to stay the course and to live with the extra cost, but maybe it's okay. Well, we said we want this. Maybe we can shave off 10% and still hit the deadline. And you know, that that's something that is, is very important for stakeholders to be able to have. Oh yeah. And one of the things that I, I like the best, and uh, this is one of those little tips, is fail faster. Right. Uh, if we can fuck it up as much as we can early on, we will learn from our fuck-ups and we will get better faster and thus deliver better things more quickly. And I mean, it, it seems like it's a, at least at, you know, just on, on face value, like it sounds pessimistic, but it's really not. I mean... It, it's just pragmatic because you're going to fail. You're going to fuck up your estimations. Like that's just how it's going to go. And the the longer, <laughs> the longer you work in the industry, it doesn't help you estimate better. It just no, it just lets you know how wrong estimations are. Like it just gives you less and less faith in them. And that that is oh, that yeah. is information that you can work with. Like that is something that you can work around. And clients sometimes don't necessarily understand that but with the fail faster methodology i mean you are able to kind of un you know uncover basically pick up one rock to see you know oh shit 
there are 15 other rocks under here that are completely impossible to get over. So we need to quickly in the most annoying word in the industry pivot. <laughs> oh, Jesus. One of the overused businessisms. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I like the, the concept of that, you know, quick pivot from you know one thing to another, but God bless if that does not come up in every meeting, like alignment and pivot are two of the things they they have replaced synergy like synergy used to be the thing that i would like make fun of jargon yeah that would be my go-to jargon thing to make fun of but no it is now pivot and alignment <laughs> synergy's out and now it's uh stuff that you would hear at the body shop uh from the mechanic <laughs> about your car so okay in your opinion what is the what is the best source of a deadline? Like, like who is best equipped to determine the deadline? I mean, if we're talking about deadlines, the person who's best equipped to establish the deadline is the person with the biggest pocketbook. Okay. And unfortunately, that's, that's a truth. Uh, for as much as we would like to, to get away from that, Sometimes you still kind of get to the, at the end of the day, this has to be done by Tuesday kind of situations. And so it's not, you know, I see a lot of people get frustrated because they think uh, an agile transition means that there will never be deadlines and those deadlines are a thing of the past. (laughs) And that's just not like, that's not necessarily going to happen. Really what, what you're doing is you're trying to better prepare yourself to have conversations with, with the owners and stakeholders right. about moving their expectations toward faster feedback so that we're doing more stuff before the deadline and getting better feedback from them before the deadline. Because, you know, we'll still end up like, okay, that's fun and all, but if you guys don't have it by... I don't know, Tuesday, we're not going to pay you for right. it. And then you've still got to respond to those situations. Right. Because sometimes the deadlines are superficial. Like sometimes they're, they're arbitrary. You know, we, we need this by December 10th of 2019, because that's, that's the thing that we said in our head. Like that's what we wrote down on our calendar when we wanted to have this thing done. You know, if that's the deadline, if that's the case with it, then, you know, chances are there are ways to, you know, get some wiggle room or, you know, find some purchase in there to where you can, uh, you know, modify that or whatnot. But there are some times where, I mean, deadlines are complete drop dead dates. Um, if there's like a new law being passed, like there's currently doing with uh, GDPR in, in Britain. Oh yeah. I mean, basically you're, if you service one of those countries, you have to have your security on point by, I guess now it's like fucking May 25th. Like it is, it is coming up. And if you don't have it done by then, you don't, if you don't have your, your certs in place, you don't have your encryption in place, you don't have all the things that, you know, all of the, uh, you know, data encrypted and things like that. If you don't have all of those in place by this certain date, your stuff stops working. Or if it doesn't stop working, like if you don't, if you don't power it off until it's ready, you start getting billed and it is, or fined, not billed, fined. And it will be expensive. Fine. Millions, Millions of, dollars. of dollars. So, I mean, there are some hard deadlines that are, are mandated completely outside of your control. And those are the ones that, you know, they're going to be tough, but at least they're understandable. Then there are some deadlines that are the ones that I fought most 
essentially are made by by bad bosses, to be honest. Um, and th- this this story is one that both falls under uh, bad bosses and under deadlines. Um, but there was this this one uh, one place I was working at early in my career, and I, I loved working for the company. But the the boss that I had was um, he was a, he was a big showman. Like he did not care about um, process so much. He didn't care about anything. He just wanted people to think that he could run a software shop really well, and he could not, but he pretended that he could. And whenever he would basically go out and, you know, write these deadlines or you know, write these checks that we had to cash, you know, then we would literally be um, sometime pulling, you know, 10, 15, 20 hour days if we had to. And oh, yeah. you know, there was this one, this one deadline that I remember, it was like four months before I quit because I could not take it anymore. Um, he basically put a deadline that was probably, I mean, no joke, probably a solid month before it needed to be done or a, a, sol- a solid month before we could possibly get it done. And so, you know, we told him, it's like, hey, you need to move this deadline. We're we're not telling you that we're that we're not willing to put in work. We're telling you that no matter how much we work, we will not have it done in time. And so. You know, he he took it back to stakeholders and they're like, oh, no, they've already made other commitments based on the deadline. So so we're stuck. So. It committed us to probably three weeks of absolute hell. And I mean, this is probably the worst three weeks that I've ever experienced in my in my working career. And they were at the beginning of my career, which why I didn't just say fuck it and go into accounting. I don't know Um, (laughs) (laughs) that that should have been my my turnoff. But uh Accounting is its own special hell, but go on. Uh, okay, so yeah, that that's true. Uh, I should have picked a little bit softer landing, but no. So you know, essentially, you know, they said you know there's there's no change the the deadline. So they set up this big meeting. We're talking, I it it was a family company, and like the the top ten people in the company were were mostly family members, and all of these top ten people, except for like the matriarch herself, were at this meeting at this big demo. We're talking an entire day just sectioned off so that we could demo the stuff that we were working on. And I bet you me and two other developers worked for 36 hours straight. Like we did not sleep. We did not leave. We barely ate. And so we we worked our asses off. We got we got it 99 percent done. And we were in there. We were in there at 8 a.m. One percent's going fucking. Uh, we were in there at 8 a.m. We were we had all of our presentations ready. We had our, our demo set up as perfectly as we could with the, you know, the little amount of sleep that we had. And so we start doing the demo and it's it's almost right. And then there's one error that happens it's some server error that we were, were trying to squash. And it just came up because of a, a data inconsistency. And the the stakeholders didn't care that much. Like they were like, oh, that's no big deal. But my boss made a big deal about it. He's like, oh, yeah, that's just an error that this and he goes off and he tries to explain the error that he doesn't know anything about. And essentially, he kind of you know waves over at us is like, oh, they'll they'll fix it. They look tired, but they're OK. They were just up playing late up late last night playing video games. <laughs> we. We sat there probably five hours and we all looked at each other and I mean, what do you even say? What can you even do in that situation? 
our boss had just disrespected us so bad over something that he committed us to that he knew that we couldn't deliver. We told him we couldn't deliver. And yet we still were left holding the bag. That is, that is probably the most disrespected I have ever felt in my career. And all because of some fucking arbitrary deadline. God, I'm still hot. I'm hot. (laughs) I'm hot, Frank. That, that was less deadline and more, uh, one of my rules for living, which is moving forward is never get into a situation in which your boss or the person who's determining the work is a salesman. Right. You have to have one, and if you can, two or three levels between you and sales. Yep. Or your life will be a constant, unending fucking nightmare. Because whether they're actual sales or whether they are, like you said, in in kind of a salesman in spirit... If they are in sales or if they're in, in a position of sales in this case, they are going to do something that makes them look good or that makes them, you know, that it positively affects their bottom line. And those decisions are normally not going to be beneficial for anybody that ha- is actually going to have to do the work. Like just across the board, <laughs> it's going to fuck somebody and it won't be them. So let me tell you about some more of my rules for living in the <laughs> elevator on the way to accounting. Okay. <laughs> I uh, can't wait uh, to get more of Frank's little tips. Hey, this is Clyde. And this is Sugar Tip. And some other dumb redneck. It's Sparky, Buddy. dumb shit. <laughs> yeah, whatever. And this is Sucralose Mammaries. How many times do we have to tell you, Sugar Tits, Blondie? Sorry, you guys are the dumb ones on this show. Hell, Pecker, yeah. It's the Old Still Radio Show. Find us at www.oldstillradioshow.com. Come on and listen to the Old Still Radio Show. Do you like Dungeons & Dragons? Well, did you know there are countless other tabletop games that are just as, if not even more fun? Games like Shadowrun, Blades in the Dark, Numenera, Seventh Sea. The only problem is going through and reading that many books can be time-consuming and expensive, especially if you don't like the book you bought. That's where I come in. If you're tired of the same old sword and sorcery, or just want to learn some unique and fun games, come listen to Metamagic, the RPG podcast. Where I not only break down different tabletop RPGs, but give you the tips and tools needed to run a better game or be a better player. That's Metamagic, the RPG podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you can find podcasts. Subscribe today. Alright, want to get into a uh, question from the audience? Let's do it. What percentage of the workday should I spend texting wrestling memes to my friends? <clears throat> Sent in by Andrew from Wednesday Roundup. <laughs> so, I mean, the exact amount, uh, exact percentage, I'm not entirely sure. But I, I don't really think there's any hard and fast rule that, uh, that is a hard cutoff. What, what, do, I mean, what do you think, Frank? How much do you... I mean, you text me, like, all sorts of stuff about, like... You know, Rowdy Roddy Piper and like the, you know, Ric Flair, the nature boy. I mean, you, you are all about oh, the, yeah. you know, texting the memes to me, but uh, how much of your day do you spend uh, texting the, uh, the wrestling memes? 
I I don't spend any more than I think an hour and a half out of an eight hour workday texting, uh, wrestle memes. <laughs> oh oh, wrestlemania, is that a thing? Can we make? You can just go right to hell, Derek. <laughs> Don't worry, they got all kinds of shaved Brussels sprouts waiting for you. Oh, man. See, I'm not going to say that I dislike wrestling. I, I, I had this very long period of time in my life, like from like the age of like eight, or maybe even a little, maybe, maybe like the age of seven, until probably 16 or 17, where I was every Monday night, every single Monday night, I was watching WWF. Like, I watched, you know, WWF Heat, WWF Raw, like anything that I could watch that was WWF, I I was there. I don't know what it was. Like, it was the pageantry of it. I don't, I knew that it was fake. Like, don't get me wrong. I knew that it was fake. But there was really this, this really. The pomp, the circumstance. There was the a, bulging, sweaty men all oiled up and dancing with each other. Look, I'm not saying that I found myself through wrestling, but I didn't not find myself through wrestling. But the thing is, there was this really you know, kind of special period in wrestling. Um, what, what was his name? Um, the Heartbreak Kid, um, Shawn Michaels. There was a time where you know, he started to come on the scene, and I think it was like some like... Uh, ladder match with some guy that was like a, a dentist or something. I don't, I don't know. Oh, uh, yes. Dan the Dentist. <laughs> don't remember his name. I mean, he has been kind of lost to the annals of history because uh, Shawn Michaels gave him that sweet, sweet chin music and, uh, and beat him. His, his dental drill maneuver was no match for Shawn Michaels. I mean, you're, you're, I, I know you're, you're trying to speak out your ass, but you're not really far off. Uh, he had like like some like uh, I forget what he called it. it. It was like there's a move called the DDT, and he I think he called it like the DDS or something because he was a dentist. So, <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> but no, I mean uh... like like that was where I think my love for wrestling started because I guess that was in like '92 or '93, and I had never seen like a like a pay per view event or anything like that. But they they played this on regular cable, and I was just. I was just fucking wrapped. Like I was, I was watching that TV, waiting for Shawn Michaels to start like bobbing his leg up and down, and for him to like deliver that sweet chin music and knock that fucker off like a twenty foot ladder. Oh man, <laughs> that was that was cinematics at its finest for the time. I I have to assume that like that was literally one of his catchphrases was that sweet chin music. Right. He like he that was his whole thing. Is that like uh. You know, he would have this thing where he'd kind of like, he'd be down and out. He would be getting his ass kicked, and then he'd just, like, get by a stroke of luck, like, lay him out on the other side of the ring. And then he'd get in the corner, and, like, he'd start, like, bobbing his leg. Like, just, like, kind of just bouncing it up and down. And then they'd stand up, they'd look at him, just in time for his foot to be coming straight to their chin. And they'd get knocked down they get pinned and he would win. Like <laughs> that was literally how 90% of his matches ended. Thinking back, See, <laughs> that may have been staged. <laughs> I, I don't know. We're going to have to go back to the video to Review see the tapes. <laughs> <laughs> See, the size of the fucking nerd that I am, I was thinking that you were just referencing, like, 1930s noir slang for punching someone. 
until until you said it a couple times and i was like wait no this guy probably adopted this as some sort of wrestle move yep 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 that was Shawn michael's signature move for uh, a long period of time um but yeah see my knowledge of of wrestling like i am hulk hogan andre the giant uh-huh it's like the mid-80s type of era yeah, like the mid '80s. That's that's when I knew wrestling, uh, and not not a not a whole lot, but just uh, some. And then the next time that I intersect wrestling uh, is Dream Daddy. <laughs> uh, so you took the 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 long trip around. But it finally came full circle when you uh, found the <laughs> found the hot dad that you liked the best. That's that's right. <laughs> that sweet sweet Manchego. <laughs> I, I have not played Dream Daddy, but I have seen it played and good shit all around. But no, I I I, I think I'm trying to think of exactly when it was. I, I guess it was somewhere in like 2000 or. 2002 where i finally gave up on wrestling because like it <laughs> you have Has to it suspend gotten too real at that point no you have to suspend disbelief whenever you watch wrestling I, I mean that's a core part of it obviously but i think it was around when uh stone cold steve austin like got like and i don't know if he actually broke his neck or like it was all staged or what but, you know, after Steve Austin broke his neck and things kind of went into a weird period where there wasn't like uh, there weren't those like quintessential badasses like like you had the rock that was kind of getting out of it because he was starting to do <laughs> fucking movies <laughs> like movies and shit. <laughs> uh, what what was that one? Uh, walking something shit. I forget what, what movie it was, but yeah, the rock started doing movie. Uh, walking tall, walking tall, or walk tall. Yeah, that was it. And so The Rock started doing movies and, you know, I mean, he wasn't half bad. Like he, you know, he's a, a really funny guy. And so for oh, know, yeah. the movies were just a natural progression of his career. But you started having less of these quintessential, <laughs> quintessential badasses. And, um, you know, Triple H was getting on up there in years. Uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. I don't know if you're familiar with Triple H, but, you know, he was like the, the snooty bad, you know, snooty bad guy who pretended to be like super rich and then snubbed people. And then that started fights and all that kind of shit. But you, you know, go on, Derek, <laughs> do tell. <laughs> Look, I, I am not going to sit here and give you spoilers for all the uh, late nineties, early two thousands uh, wrestling drama that happened. You're going to have to do that yourself. But no, so a after I'm that, be up on the Wikipedia page after this, trying to cram. I think it would probably be interesting to go back and read that. Uh, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to do that. I'm not saying I'm not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> so are are you familiar with like uh like WWF versus WCW like that rivalry and things like that? Not not really. As I said, <laughs> once once you get out of the the Hulk Hogan era, uh, an early Hulk, not heel turn Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> like original rip the shirt right you know like yeah. that uh, hulkamania level hulk right that's that's where i kind of got out of the scene as it were right uh and my knowledge from that point until this point is at 
probably just close to zero. Uh, yeah. Now I know that uh, that like WWE is like the culmination of like all the different wrestling federations and whatnot. So um, I, I'm sure that collectively they came up with a you know <laughs> decent storylines. And it's so weird. Like maybe not weird. That's not the right word. It's it's kind of uh, odd to see like wrestling still be as big as it is because it is it's pageantry it's ridiculous but it kind of crosses like just cuts across you know a lot of different you know socioeconomic levels because i i don't know there's something universal that that kind of not everybody's going to like it but it doesn't matter what socioeconomic status are. you have they it 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 clicks with them and they and they get that that pageantry that 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 odd microcosm that is this this thing so i mean more more power a lot them. of the a lot of the wrestlers like it is an enormously athletic production absolutely um like these guys are out there they are you know they're putting their blood sweat tears into this entertainment medium so i am not in any way shape or form knocking them like absolutely not i know the old the old canard joke is you know oh wrestling's fake and it's like yeah no shit but at the same time let's see you go get you know do some of these flying <laughs> off the top rope horse shit uh even if the there's a lot of give on that mat uh i don't want to do a belly flop off the top of it fuck no i mean and like you said like it is quote unquote you know people call it fake the outcomes are largely or entirely i'm not not even gonna I don't even know how much uh, predetermined, like almost all the fights are, are predetermined. Like they follow a storyline. They actually have writers like they have people that are that oh, are yeah. hired to, you know, concoct these storylines and, and sell it to, to people and, and get them riled up about it. And th the thing is, the rest of that about, you know, uh, you know, some of the slaps and punches are fake and things like that. But when look, Frank, I don't know. I don't know how, how they're able to do it, but like. Unless there's something I don't know. If you drop kick a motherfucker, you still hit the ground. Like, like you both. Oh yeah, I mean they're they're hitting the ground and stuff. Oh, they're yeah. doing all these things in a way to minimize the amount of damage. They, they have uh, they have not and maximize their safety. But yeah, they have not perfected theatrical levitation yet. So yeah, there's only so much you can do when your ass is hitting the floor. Right. Like that just still hurts. Oh yeah. You know, a lot of these guys are enormously talented. Absolutely. Uh, like The Rock, for instance, or Dwayne Johnson, as he, you know, seems to prefer to be known now. You know, they've got crossover careers into film and stuff like that because they have to be good actors in order to continue on with the whole wrestling thing. Right. And so they often can cross over into acting. You see a lot of them cross over into acting, some more successfully than others. Uh, you know, and that's something that I <laughs> admire quite a bit. Sorry, uh, just for some reason, I I flash back to um, oh fuck, what was that movie where Hulk Hogan was the nanny? Oh my god, uh, uh, was it just called the nanny? <laughs> I don't me. know that one. And there's another. I think there's another one called uh, Tropic Thunder, where Hulk Hogan is like, I don't know. I, I know he's on a jet ski and swimming under the water at one point, but it's Mr. Nanny, Mr. Nanny. That's it. Oh my God. That there Hulk Hogan did not do it as successfully as some, I, I didn't mean to do derail, <laughs> derail that quite as hard, but my mind just went into full like flashback mode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were like the, the late eighties, early nineties. 
Yeah, that was that was the time uh, of the Hulk Hogan film. Right. <laughs> oh, those were dark days. <laughs> I I much prefer the the days of uh, our era of, you know, <laughs> Dwayne the Rock Johnson films. They're far far superior. I don't know. It's it's one of my guilty pleasures. Uh, <laughs> but the Rundown is probably one of my favorite films. I I think the Rundown is the one that I was thinking of earlier. Uh, with uh the the guy who played Stifler from American Pie, uh yeah, yep, that that was the one. It it is the weird the weirdest movie because it is it is not a good movie, and I, well, oh no, I I think you've actually you may be the one that that kind of brought this to my attention, but it is not a good movie, but it is universally a lovable movie. It is an entertaining film. <laughs> uh, just I. Just talking about it honestly brings a smile to my face like few things can, and I don't know why. Death, destruction, this... and the rundown. <laughs> and the rundown. Like, just a, a couple of my favorite things. I'll have to sing a song about it. <laughs> oh, God. Want to take an issue from the internet? Yeah, let's do that. All right, I'll preface this one by saying that this one, this one's a little out of left field. And whenever I, whenever I go and find these issues from the internet... I typically try to find some that are more or less plausible. I think the uh, the seven hundred dollars sex butt is the furthest out into left field. I think I've gotten uh, with some of these. This one, I mean, the seven hundred dollars sex butt was pretty good, and the bit we did was even better. <laughs> I think this one may have been somebody just just goofing, but uh, but I couldn't pass it up when I saw it. All right, the title right, the, hit me. the title is My Child Just Purchased an Actual Tank on eBay <laughs> by What in the Actual <laughs> Hell. All right. Uh yeah, so their username is What in the Actual Hell. So, very <laughs> very on point for this one. So, I got a phone call telling me that having a tank delivered via transport would be at minimum $500 even though they were paying the shipping since it would be would need vehicular transport. Or I can come get it at the New York airport and delivery to my house would then be my job. I asked what they were talking about, and they told me this address phone number ordered a Panzer tank from them on eBay and already paid the fee. My only child is 13 year old is my 13 year old daughter who says she saw a $34 tank on auction, but she thought it was some kind of anime tank or you know small, uh, small collectible, I suppose, uh, that was like 10 inches, not the real tank. I tried to tell the guy, but he said, it's too late now. <laughs> he has already paid the shipping, and it's being shipped <laughs> at this very moment. I have no idea how in the hell she bought this or got access to our credit card. Uh, yes, because access to your credit card is the least plausible part of all this. Uh, but now I have to pay $500 plus to get this thing when I don't want it. He told me, <laughs> okay, he told me there were no shells in it, and it was small enough to ride as a car. <laughs> And that it was a lucky what the fuck? <laughs> and that it was a lucky auction for me. He should have set the auction amount lower, basically trying to get me to pay the rest of the fees. But now I'm stuck. I can't cancel this, and I I don't know the exact price of what it'll be. Also reading the also reading the eBay rules, canceling auctions is not permitted. So I must pay the rest of this. Does anyone else uh use eBay or know how I could stop this before it's too late? My daughter doesn't need a tank. <laughs> <laughs> I love the selling one. job that this guy does. It's like you know, there's no shells in it. It's small enough to ride around in, as a car. 
<laughs> it's probably not going to fuck up your yard too bad. I want to live in a world in which this is a problem someone actually had. I agree. That was. I think that's what we're going to go with as the premise. I think so. Because the thing is, I know that somebody, this might just be a goof. I get it. I have no, uh, no false illusions that this is uh, 100% true, but... I want but the to world believe. is a better place when some lady is trying to go to the internet to figure out what to do with her unwanted tank that her 13-year-old daughter bought. <laughs> uh, because at, at some point, you know, she's going to need a first vehicle for uh, learning to drive. Absolutely. And honestly, what's going to be safer for your precious baby to learn how to drive <laughs> than a decommissioned World War II tank? <laughs> That that was almost like verbatim what my inner monologue was saying. I was like, how can you possibly pick a safer first vehicle than that? Like, you know, I, I drove uh, an 85 Ford Ranger, which was um, tank-esque. Like, it was, it was uh, a very heavy vehicle. Uh, you know, I, I did not really get into any wrecks, but... You know, I, I feel like it, it would have, you know, basically whatever I hit would have definitely been worse for wear compared to my vehicle but no if if i had been able to drive around in a tank i think my parents would have slept better uh got a lot better sleep at night i feel and the thing is after she has got it figured out like if you can parallel park a panzer <laughs> she ain't gonna have no fucking problem with her tesla model 3 Absolutely later in not. life or whatever Oh God! Can you imagine like driving that fucker up to the uh, the DMV for your driver's license test? Like, where would the where would the uh, the inspector or whoever it is, uh, the instructor, even sit? Like, are they just like riding on the turret or something? Like, I, I, I was gonna say, I think they're gonna have to sit in like the little commander pod okay. that's up on the turret. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so they'll actually not even really. Uh, be paying attention to how you're driving because they're going to be pretending to shoot every car that goes by. Like, yeah, I mean, you're guaranteed to pass your, your driver's exam, you know, regardless of how many cars you run over uh, or stoplights you run through, like the pole and everything else attached to it. Because the guy's going to be having so much fun up there playing captain that uh, <laughs> He's not you're attention. just going to get passed out of hand. So when I, when I took my uh, driver's license test, I got it almost perfect, except for one thing. They said that when I was backing up, I didn't back up with enough confidence. If I was in a fucking Panzer <laughs> tank, you bet your ass I'm going to be backing up with confidence. I'm doing everything with confidence. Taking... <laughs> Doing a three-point turn, you know, merging five lanes of traffic. Man, I could not be more confident than in a fucking Panzer tank. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even going to put on my blinker. Because, I mean, okay, if you're on the road, everyone around you is paying attention to the fucking Panzer tank. They're going to forget oh, about Oh, yeah, the that's Defensive Driving 101. <laughs> Actually, that's Defensive Driving 001. That's the rule that they don't cover. That's not a class for that. But that's the basic line is if there is a tank, it gets right away in all situations. Like, four-way stops, you, yield you come signs to a four-way stop sign, who gets to go first? Uh, the 13-year-old girl in a tank. 
see, I I was hoping this would be a good goof. I didn't think that I would actually end up wanting to to now go and drive a Panzer tank around. Like this is really si- sounding like a viable alternative to my Camry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. This is a dream that a lot of people have, Derek, and I'm I'm fairly certain that you can make it a reality. I've seen places where you can go and pay a certain amount of money to go drive an old tank around for a while. I mean, Uh, that would be a neat experience. But, like, see... But, yeah, I I think it takes something else. Apparently $500 wired to some guy at the New York airport uh, (laughs) to, to make it your daily commuter. So here's the thing. Now, you know... Let, let's for a minute suspend our disbelief and just truly lean into the fact that this happened. I am not 100% on eBay's terms of service, but I feel that decommissioned war machines is on a list somewhere. Like, I'm pretty oh, I'm sure <laughs> there's probably a list. Like, shit you shouldn't fuck with on eBay. Right. Down on, like, no, it's, you know, probably not number one. It's probably number 29. Right. Is, you know, no sales of weapons of war. (laughs) And that's for your safety and also sort of global safety. Because what you don't want is war pigs getting on there and selling all their old machinery. Right. You know, I don't don't necessarily need to pop on over to eBay and, and get a couple of Scud missiles for pennies on the dollar. I mean, especially like like thirty four dollars. Like, if you're gonna sell a fucking Panzer tank on eBay, you gotta set the reserve at at least like a thousand dollars. Like, come on. Like, this is not I, this is not uh what is it uh God what what was that 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 auction site where you can like basically bid a penny at a time. Like, this is not one of those. Like, you need you need a solid reserve so that I mean. I mean, this is this is basically like somebody's allowance. Like she spent Derek, her allowance to buy a fucking. What you don't Panzer understand, tank. Derek, is these tanks are priced to move. We've got to get these tanks <laughs> off the lot and into the hands of buyers. So the question I have for you, Derek, is what is it going to take to get you in this tank today? Apparently, five hundred and thirty-four dollars exactly. Five hundred thirty-four dollars and ninety-nine cents. God. Damn, the tank's price to move. God. <laughs> the only, the only <laughs> possible downside that I can see to this whole thing is that gassing up is going to be an absolute <laughs> bitch. Where would you, okay, A, where is the, where is the gas tank on this thing? Where's the gas cap? Like... Well, it, when you're it, sitting in the tank, the, the secret is, if you look at the fuel gauge, there's a little arrow on the left or right that's going to tell you whether the cap is on the left <laughs> or the right side of the tank. And then how difficult it is to move with the tank, uh, you really want to check that shit before you get that's not, into that, the gas station, because backing back out and, and wheeling it back around, that's not exactly easy. Yeah, if you pull in to the uh, the pump on the wrong side, you have just committed yourself to a lot of damage. Oh my god. And sure, oh. the tank was $35, but when you get five gallons to the mile... <laughs> <laughs> and really, what... Okay, maybe I, I'm not up to, to date on... Well, I guess not even up to date. Uh, I am not 
familiar with some of the old uh, World War II weaponry. What were the max speeds of these things? Like, can they can they do inter- interstate speed? Like, <laughs> the thing is, and it's scary as shit. Yes, they can. I think really? they, a lot of the even the older ones could get up to like fifty five miles an hour or so. God bless. Yeah, you, all you got to all you got to hit's forty five. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they'll, they'll book it, I guess, but. So, Jeez. I mean, it's not, it's not as fast, but it's as fast as you need to be, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I, how I, fast can, how fast can the tank go? As fast as it wants. <laughs> there are no speed limits where we're going. Oh my God. I, I thought that we were just going to make fun of this and move on. But I, like I said, I am the viability of, of a tank for, for my daily commute. It's really taking a shine. <laughs> oh, God. All right, you want to punch the clock? Let's punch the clock. If you have any questions you'd like for us to answer on air, send them to questions at WLICast.com. You can also visit us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash WLICast or on Twitter at WLNBalance and use the hashtag WLICast. This has been the Work-Life Imbalance Podcast. I'm Frank Eastman. And I'm Derek Lewis. And with that, I think we're going to have to transfer you. I, I'm making a list of pros and cons, Frank. There's <laughs> a lot so more in the pro. A lot more in the pros. I mean, the only con so far is like an international terrorist watch list. Like that's yeah, but I mean that's a big one. Terrorist watch list, the gas thing. You know, gas prices are rising, but maybe maybe they'll come out with a hybrid. Yeah. <laughs>